Sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be an angel When everything goes wrong you see some bad Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon This is Prison Pipeline I'm Doug McVeigh. Prison Pipeline presents a unique perspective of the criminal justice system, addressing the root causes of crime and broadening understanding of the institution of incarceration. We seek to promote awareness and activism in order to foster a safe, healthy, and just society. Tara Hurst is someone I admire and respect greatly. Inspiration, really. Accomplished, smart, caring, compassionate, a person in long-term recovery, and the executive director of the Health Justice Recovery Alliance. And she's on Zoom with me now. Tara, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Doug. Thank you for being with us. Let's get right to it. The legislature's in session. Measure 110 reforms and other good, effective, humane policies are all under threat by drug war zealots, along with some well-intentioned, yet sadly misguided souls. Um, What are we looking at in Salem this session? Well, there's a lot of bills. I think the bill stack was at about 1,500 bills um, as of last week. Uh, So... The ones that, you know, would impact Measure 110 directly, there are about uh, 10. So there's about six bills, two bills to just do a full repeal, four bills that would criminalize people again for a small possession, a gram of heroin in your pocket. Uh, There's one that would take up to $50 million out of the uh, out of behavioral health treatment and um, prevention services. And then there's one that would make a failure to appear for a citation a crime. Um, And so that's trying to get at folks who aren't necessarily showing up with their citation to the courts, even though we, you know, haven't don't even have a uniform citation at this point. Um, for law enforcement to be handing out. So those are the ones that are kind of direct hits and um, assaults at Measure 110. You know, the good news is, is that most of them um, probably won't even get a hearing uh, because they don't have the support of the majority, which is why it's always so important to show up and vote. you know, and uh, they will probably just be bad ideas that um, that go away to die. Uh, but they're out there. And, you know, I, I see it a little bit as um, when we started in the Obamacare, Affordable Care Act fight, uh, there was always repeal bills, there was so many repeal bills. And, you know, the public started getting used to no not being able to be turned away by pre existing with pre existing conditions that all of a sudden didn't seem like a radical concept, but a way to try and help struggling families. Um, and so I do think that Measure 110, though a different law, still feels radical to so many people, but others, it feels like this is just the way that we should be addressing this. And of course, we don't want them to repeal it. So it's political posturing. Um, I think the money you know, trying to get take money and give it to cities and counties and state police is 
a little more of a threat um, that's coming from a full revenue committee. Uh, and, you know, that's something that we're we're really going to have to keep an eye on and and uh, push back on, you know, especially when leadership of both the House and the Senate and our governor are all saying that their top priority is funding behavioral health and addictions. I would hope that they would recognize that this is um, taking money out to fund other things is not the way to do that. I suppose I understand the the strategy have some some really out there kind of extreme um, measures in that way. The people who come in and argue to just make cuts and changes in Measure 110 seem, you know, by comparison to be more reasonable when I mean, that's the whole that's the whole strategy in the first place is just to make cuts and changes. It's a death of a thousand cuts. It's um. Sorry, the um, I'll get into a rant if I'm not careful. Um, I attended an Oregon Health Forum legislative preview recently. Measure 110 was under discussion. The opponents were complaining that, let's see, um, there aren't enough treatment slots available, especially in rural parts of the state, um, that M110 funding had been slow to roll out. Uh, a lot of people were still looking for their money, according to these uh, according to these legislators. That was a couple weeks ago. Um, and that traditional treatment providers aren't getting M110 funding. Oh, and the uh, the fourth the the fourth theme that came through that not as many people are being arrested and forced into court mandated treatment as in years past. Now, 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 contradictions in these arguments are pretty obvious to me, but that's never stopped them before. So I guess they need to be addressed. So now, it it did take a while for the state to start making that marijuana revenue available through M one ten, but that was largely because of Oregon Health Authority foot dragging and non cooperation. I mean, it has finally started flowing. Yeah. Yeah, I think everybody should have gotten their money by now. Um, every county has been under contract, at least by September at the latest October. You know, we agree with a lot of the the concerns in that we were the loudest um, people a around the fact that the money wasn't getting out um, when people, you know, when our providers really needed it to be able to meet the need of our communities. So I agree. Um, not much we could do about it now, and the money's getting out, so let's support the folks that got the money to help them make sure that they're able to serve the most people. You know, we're hearing of providers who got rental assistance that have already, through their rental assistance vouchers, because there's so much need. And so to say that this isn't having an impact is really um, just a it's flat out false. There's people still living in homes because of this. There are people who are now finally connecting to services that they never would have asked for services before. They had never asked for services before. They were able to have more of outreach workers going into camps and really working with folks um, through, you know, a much more dignity and respectful manner. Um, and, and quite frankly, you know, treatment is defined as, you know, something that is helping to treat the person, right? So treatment beds, we do need more treatment beds all over the state, not even just in rural Oregon. Um, and that is something that the health authority and the governor's office and, and all of us need to work towards a fully funded behavioral health system. 
Um, and Measure 110 is not going to fully fund our behavioral health system. We are a fraction of what needs to happen. And you need housing for someone who got who gets out of treatment or who's waiting for treatment. You need to have harm reductionists who can keep people alive so they can even make it into treatment. We know that people who access harm reduction um, services are five times more likely to actually access treatment services. So these are things that peer support services, supported employment, this is about setting somebody up for long-term recovery and long-term success. A 28-day bed isn't the only thing that's needed. And so, you know, part of our legislative agenda is really to work on not just keeping Measure 110 money whole, but really um, ensuring that we're cut backing, you know, breaking down the silos between mental health and addiction, making sure that we are getting all the services that folks need stood up. But the idea that Measure 110 should be supplanting Medicaid and private insurance for treatment beds is just not a good use of our taxpayer dollars. And I would hope that people, especially people making our healthcare policy, would understand that. We should have services that are qualified for health insurance and Medicaid covered by those and hold those folks accountable and ensure that they're stepping up and really doing the um, paying out for the services that folks need. And we need to make sure that the Measure 110 dollars are really going to these services that are um, not covered by Medicaid. So critical services that have been proven to be more effective, um, if not just as effective as a treatment bed, uh, those need to get funded too. So we need to stop pitting one service against the other and recognize that we deserve and people who are struggling deserve the whole system to work for them. I think that was the all of the arguments, but... Oh, and more people, less people are getting arrested. That's exactly what the voters asked for. So... Uh, yeah, you're right. So what Measure 110 is working, um, but it's not taking away from drug courts or people getting mandated to treatment, which, you know, studies show in the National Institute of Health also, or the World Health Organization actually has put out reports saying that coerced treatment is at best ineffective and at worst really harmful. So I think that, you know, we have seen some good outcomes from people through anecdotes who have gone through the treatment system through um, corrections. We also know that only 5% of the corrections, current corrections population can get those services because that's all they have. So, you know, the idea that we should still be treating healthcare through the criminal justice system is just an inability to kind of think past that model and that punishment model. In that form I mentioned toward the end, one of the, the they did mention there was a problem with the programs that were receiving federal Medicaid funds um, getting the marijuana re revenue. Can you why is that? What is the what? Is, yeah. What is the what is the problem with that? So there is different legal arguments and thoughts on this, but basically it's saying that you can't braid federal dollars with marijuana dollars because marijuana is still seen as is still illegal federally. So those revenues cannot go to supplant, supplant Medicaid or any type of federal dollars, which is why we're not utilizing them in that way. 
So basically, if a treatment program wants to receive Medicaid funds, they don't dare try and get marijuana revenue because they could lose they could they could lose quite a bit. Well, if a treatment program, you can do both, but they would have to be for separate services. So, you know, if you wanted to pay your peers through Measure 110 funds, but also have inpatient treatment, you just have to really be set up in a way where your billing and all of those types of, you know, components to this are really strong. So you wouldn't take 110 funds and move it all over to a fund that funds only Medicaid eligible services. Um, like like a treatment again, slot. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. Like like like, like whatever they, like that they refer to as a, a treatment slot, a treatment bed. Yeah, treatment bed. Those That's are Medicaid a, funded. Yes. Yeah. And the ones that aren't are for folks who don't have documentation, and those are covered by Measure 110 dollars. Oh. So that's you see that's the like I say it's the 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 there quite it's quite a lot of time in that forum as I, that I mentioned was spent on that very um on that very topic and it wasn't really until the end that a, any of these folks mentioned that one of them finally brought up the uh, the 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 uh, the concern regarding Medicaid and the um in the the it, 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 this is the kind of and and this I mean it's I'm sorry it's just Ah, this is the kind of um, this is the kind of farce we're going to be treated to at the legislature. Cool. I also think, though, it's important for all of us to recognize, like, there's no point in spending money on things that should be covered somewhere else, right? So even if we were allowed to do this, right, even if we were able to get an opinion that said, "Yeah, you can," you're still supplanting Medicaid dollars when we need a more robust system. So why wouldn't you, you know, why would you use your, I don't know, uh, you know, like why use your rent money for your car payment if you have both? Um, it, it doesn't make sense. So let's let's make sure that we're being fiscally responsible and not letting private insurance and Medicaid off the hook they pay for what they can pay for. And let's make sure we're maximizing that because as a state, we're not. And we have Measure 110 funds that can cover these life-saving interventions and treatments um, that should go to that. And then we're going to need more. A little further more, if I could, on regarding forced treatment. I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me, at least, that if there aren't enough treatment slots available, then trying to force more people into treatment is, I mean, um, so uh, could you speak for a moment just a little further about some of the failures of forced treatment and the stigma of criminalization in the first place? Well, I think the stigmatization, the reason that we punish people and criminalize people is because we have decided as a society that is a criminal and bad behavior. And um, you know, a lot of folks, not all, but a lot of folks who actually end up becoming, you know, addicted are, are generally trying to medicate their trauma and they haven't had access to anything else um, that has worked. And so the, the question is, does that make them a bad person? You know, that's where it kind of boils down to. Is this someone that we want to make a criminal alongside someone who's caused bodily harm or damp property damage or or anything else. And and I think that, you know, at least 58% of Oregonians don't think that we should. Um, when you criminalize somebody, 
you not only um, create a stain, you know, and and some and stigma on them, you also there's some real world implications. You can't get a, an apartment because you have to put that on your application. And if you think about how hard and how tight this um, this uh, housing market is, you want to have an impeccable record. You can't get into anywhere when you, when you have a record. Uh, same with the jobs and job market. It it reduces you to not be able to maybe live up to your full potential because you can't get the jobs that you want. You you know some places you can't apply for student loans. So it restricts doors and access for people to be able to thrive and and live a healthy life um, without and then blames them for not being able and criminalizes them for not being able to find a way out of it with not just no tools, but actual harmful tool, you know, harmful strikes and barriers against them. So that's really at the core of it. Are people who use drugs bad people? Or are they people who either are just using them and not causing any harm to anyone and it's really, you know, same as alcohol, um, or for folks who are medicating through, um, you know, through use, because we have a failed system on helping people. Um, If you built out a system that says, you know, robust as it needs to be, then, you know, we could have a conversation, but I still don't think that it it makes a criminal of somebody. I think we need to remember what criminal means versus just, you know, that's against the law. Um, and is that a good law? If, if this war on drugs was working, we wouldn't be at the highest rates of overdose as a country and the highest rates of incarceration as a country. So we really need to take, it's that definition of insanity. We keep trying the same things over and over again, expecting different results. We're saying, no, we need to punish people. They need to go to prison and then they can get treatment. That doesn't make sense. And what happens is people in our current Oregon Department of Corrections cannot access the help that they need. So if half the population have some type of substance use disorder, want support, only 10% of them can get the support that they want and need. So that's not, you know, we need to build up that system as well, because we're always going to have people in incarceration, and we need folks to be able to access the services that they need so that when they get out, if they have the services outside, which is a lot of the things that Measure 110 is funding, reentry programs, housing, getting people set up with jobs, helping them pay off their fines, um, whatever they need, then you, um, you know, you're, you're able to at least support them, but we don't really have that safety net. So what ends up happening is people go back out and start using and the drugs are much more potent than they were. And you're more likely to die two weeks after leaving the system of an overdose. So, And we just saw in Bend or in Central Oregon where people, there's plenty of drugs in jail and in prison. So if that's really what we're trying to stop, we all need to take a step back and really be willing to continue down this path of decriminalization and and see that it's not, 
criminalizing people, especially for a small position of uh, drugs, is not harming, is harming more people than, than doing good. How can people help to defend Measure 110? Um, they can make sure that they let their legislator know that they support Measure 110 and that they want to see it kept whole and give it time to really work. Um, it's already working in so many different people's lives. Uh, we're hearing stories across the state of different providers who are able to support and get people into a treatment bed, a housing bed, whatever it is that the person needs. Um, in real time, instead of on wait lists, we're being able to keep families together by making sure that they have housing that will house the whole family and not separate the kids and the kids going to foster care. So I think that people need to give this time and they need to make sure that their their lawmakers know that this is something that they support. And we have all of those tools on our website, with the, which is healthjusticerecovery.org. And uh, stay in touch with us, join our mailing list, and we will send out alerts um, as we watch all of these bills. Um, and uh, I was just about to ask for the website, well-timed. Any, uh, any closing thoughts for the listeners? No, I think that we really need to just give this time. People need to be uh, patient, and if punishing worked, we wouldn't be in this position. So let's stop going back to the thing that wasn't working and let's give the thing that could work um, more time. Tara, thank you so much. Thanks. Take care. You too. That was my conversation with Tara Hurst, Executive Director of the Health Justice Recovery Alliance. Find them on the web at healthjusticerecovery.org. I'm Doug McVeigh, and you're listening to Prison Pipeline. We have just a few minutes left, so we're going to hear a brief part of an interview I just recorded with a couple of people up in that part of Abyayala that's currently referred to as Canada. Dr. Heather Pallas is a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of British Columbia at the BC Center for Disease Control and BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services. And Mo Korshinsky is the executive director of the Unlocking the Gates Service Society. We had a fascinating conversation. They're absolutely amazing people. I'm really excited to bring you the audio. Our full interview is going to air in a few weeks. On today's show, we only have time to bring you a brief snippet. So here's Mo Korczynski telling us about the Unlocking the Gates Society. My name is Mo Korczynski. I'm the executive director of Unlocking, Unlocking the Gates Service Society. We're a peer-run organization that supports people who are incarcerated and do release planning, pick them up from the gate and support them in the community and try to keep people alive. My name is Heather Pallas. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver in the Department of Psychiatry and also am affiliated with the BC Centre for Disease Control and BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services. And I'm very grateful to work closely with Mo and others on research related to uh, health outcomes and access to services for people uh, released from prison. I wonder, Mo, if you can talk more about like one of the things that I think Unlocking the Gates does really well is helps to bridge people to those services when they're ready, because there is that stigma. I mean, this is the reason why we started Unlocking the Gates, because uh, for me, I've been out 17 years. Everybody who works for my organization all have lived experience of incarceration and addiction. And we all know what it's like when we got released. Um, 
you know, you get treated like garbage, you go any appointment you go to, you you know, you just get talked down to, um, you know, we don't really give people much dignity. And the whole point of was unlocking the gates was to walk beside people and really, you know, give, give them dignity and make sure that other people, other organizations who their work, we want to connect them to, you know, treat them with dignity, um, you know, and uh, also the other biggest one about us is giving people hope. You know, most people know we've all been incarcerated, remember us from being incarcerated. And, you know, it's like, well, how did you do it? Like, you know, how are you running an organization? How are you driving a car? How do you have your children back in your life? You know, or you got your grandkids, you know, so giving people dignity and hope and a purpose when they get out, everybody needs those three things in life. And we do a really bad job when we release people. I always say we unlock the gate to the prison, but we don't unlock the gate to society. And that's where unlocking the gates comes in to make sure that we are opening the gate to society and walking beside people, you know, if it's treatment or if it's if they even want to go back to the street, you know, making sure that they got, you know, you know, safe supply or, you know, Narcon or access to, you know, um, you know, clothing and food. I mean, we get people who get rested in the summer and get out in winter with flip flops and shorts, right? You know, and making sure they have clothes. It's just the basic needs what most of us take for granted it here that you can open up a fridge and get food, you know, and if you're banned from a shelter, it's usually the only place where you can get food. So a lot of people who can't even go to a shelter or, and or access food, right? So we have huge food insecurity and, you know, and I'm telling you, and going back to the street is non-judgmental. Going back to, you know, back to all your street buddies and back to homeless camps, it's so welcoming, And but we don't do that with society. We don't welcome people back. And I always say it takes a community to raise a child. It takes a community to support somebody who's trying to change their, turn their life around and try to bridge them back into being, you know, somebody in society. And um, yeah, so that's where Unlocking the Gates comes. We work with the whole province. We work with 10 provincial pro uh, prisons across the province. I have staff from one end of the province to the other. Um, this year alone, we've done over 1,600 clients. We have done release planning, picking up at the gate and supporting the community. And and you were saying the um, even something stuff as simple as um, accompanying a person to uh, to like a doctor's appointment, things like that. Yeah, yeah. doctors, probation. Um, we also have a probation resolution program where we work with people who are on probation. We connect with their probation officer because the longest sentence somebody can get is a probation sentence. A six-month probation period can turn into six years. So many people get reincarcerated because they didn't sign in or they breached their probation. So we now work closely with probation officers, and they'll phone and say, "Hey, Jill didn't report in. Can you get go find them and, you know, get them to check in?" So we've been doing that, and um, it's been super successful because people just don't know what time it is or what day it is, or they don't have a phone or they can't make it to, you know, or they're, it's too far away for them to get to their probation officer because they don't have money. They can't get on the bus and it's too far to walk. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, UTG is there to support whatever our clients need for the best chances to, for them to succeed and stay alive. Like I said, it's really about keeping this population alive because, you know, tonight when I go to bed at night, I know six families we're going to bed with loved ones that were no longer with us because of this overdose crisis. 
That was Mo Korczynski, Executive Director of the Unlocking the Gates Service Society up in British Columbia, Canada. It's from an interview with Mo and with Dr. Heather Pallas, a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of British Columbia at the BC Center for Disease Control and BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services. We'll have the full interview in a few weeks here on Prison Pipeline. That's all the time we have for now. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Prison Pipeline. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Find this and other installments of Prison Pipeline on the web at kboo.fm slash prison pipeline. You'll also find a link there to subscribe to the Prison Pipeline podcast. Prison Pipeline has a Facebook page. It's at facebook.com slash prison pipeline. Please give its page a like and share it with friends. Join us again next week for another edition of Prison Pipeline. For now, this is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long.